and let's turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And we'll end the night with our time of prayer. But let's begin with our Bible study tonight. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14. I hope you're having a good week. I enjoy our midweek services. I like getting to see folks. And um, it's, it's a little more intimate on, on uh, Wednesday nights, isn't it? It's kind of busy here on Sunday mornings. Um, but it's, it's good to see each one of you here tonight. I know you know this verse. You've heard it. Uh, not only have you studied it probably in your personal time, but preachers preach this verse often. Uh, when Solomon was dedicating the temple that he was finally allowed to build for God, um, God spoke this verse to Solomon, and he was calling Israel to uh, he was calling Israel to um, revival. And I he had mentioned to Solomon earlier that disobedience would lead to judgment of the nation. God God was very upfront with him. He said, "If you obey me, there's great blessing in store. If you disobey." And if there's rebellion, if there's a turning away from the word of God, then there's great judgment in store. But this verse is God's promise from those who turn from their sins and turn back to him. And I know it was spoken to the nation of Israel. Um, And although that's true, it does speak to every follower of God in every generation. There are certain things uh, that are in the Bible that are just for Israel. And that's absolutely true. There are things in the Bible that are just for Israel the New Testament church. There are things in the Bible that pertain only to the kingdom of God. But then there are those things that they are true for all people in all cultures in all times. And this is one of those verses. And so although it's spoken to Israel, it's good for us. And you and I both know that the churches in America need revival. We, we know this on a, on a personal and individual level but also corporately, churches that proclaim the name of Christ need to know what genuine revival is. Satan knows that, um, and he does everything he can to fight us. Our flesh knows that and does the same thing. And so we're going to look at revival tonight. The enemies of personal revival is is the title uh, of our study, but we're going to look at revival. Revival is a true work of God that we can't produce on our own, or by our own efforts, and I I put this in your worksheet, that revival is a supernatural event that comes by the sovereign decree of the Lord. You and I don't choose to be revived. You and I don't choose for revival to break out. That is a choice that belongs to God. God supernaturally and sovereignly decrees revival. In 2 Chronicles 7.14 tonight, we're going to look at four problems that will sabotage or will prevent me or prevent you from knowing personal revival. Although revival is God's sovereign work, we have the responsibility to see that these enemies of revival are not present in our lives so that if God chooses, he can bring revival to us. Do you remember the prophet's question in the Old Testament? He asked God, will thou not revive thy people again, O Lord? It's because that's what God has to do. I'd like to be able to work up revival. Um, And I know there are some things that are called revival. You can go on YouTube and you can see some pretty interesting things that are called revival. I was was early in the ministry when uh, uh, when that thing broke out down there in Florida. That so called revival broke down there in Florida. And people were barking like dogs and calling it the work of the Holy Spirit. And they were 
rolling around in the floor laughing their heads off in Pensacola, Florida, saying that this was an outpouring of the Spirit. That's blasphemous. The work of the Holy Spirit is always going to point you to Jesus Christ. That is what he does. And when revival comes, he's going to turn us toward Christ. He's going to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. So God's responsibility is to send revival, and that's his work. Our responsibility is to make sure that we're living a life that can experience personal revival. Now, you know, before we get into this, you know that this verse is not talking to lost people. Well, how does the verse start out? If my people who are called by my name. This is not for lost. It's not for the unsaved. This is, this is for God's people. Uh, this is not a verse calling uh, in the, the lost people to be saved or pagans to turn to God. This is for people who are following him. And so if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, Second Chronicles 7.14 is for you, and it's for me. Look what it says. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. So God is, God is calling us to this revival. I, I said a moment ago, we looked at Tozier's eight steps uh, for personal revival. Tonight, let's look at the enemies, the hindrances, the things that will stop that. If, if, it, if, God, if, if I can't work up revival, then my responsibility is to make sure that I'm living a life and I have a heart in which God can send personal revival. When he sends personal revival, it's, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like a lit match being too close to other matches. And it, it tends to spread. When God does personal revival in a church in one or two people, it tends to catch fire in that church. God's spirit moves in. Thank the Lord for those times. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in cities in the Old Testament. But tonight we're going to look at this, the enemies of personal revival. And I hope it's an encouragement to you uh, and, a, and a challenge, a challenge and an encouragement at the same time. So let's begin with these four, these four enemies, all right? Here's the first one. Pride is the enemy of revival. Let's start with pride. The, that's the first enemy of revival. It says uh, at the very beginning of the verse, if my people which are called by my name, God's followers, shall humble themselves. The word pride or proud in the Old Testament, their first cousins, it literally means to rise or to swell up. And the picture is that of a great ocean wave just kind of swelling up and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what pride is inside of me. I swell up with my sense of self-worth and self-importance. I saw this video this last week. I was watching this video. And it's somewhere uh, somewhere off the coast of Portugal, I think, and they were talking about it being the biggest waves in the world. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't really know. But there was a guy surfing on that thing, and I thought, that wave is going to come down and crush him. It didn't. I don't know how tall that wave was. It looked like it was 60 or 70 feet tall. He's riding that surfboard. I was like, well, more power to you. I tried one of those paddle boards. <coughs> you know what I'm talking about, the paddle board? It looks like a surfboard, but it's not. You're supposed to stand on it and take an oar, and you just kind of paddle yourself across. I did this down in Florida one time in a cove that was perfectly calm. I couldn't get that thing. I couldn't stand up on that thing for nothing. So I'm just going to stick with swimming in the water and let somebody else paddleboard or surf. That guy was surfing this huge wave, 
That word pride and proud in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word draws a picture. I like the Hebrew language because it's very picturesque. It it draws pictures in your minds. And the word proud means to be swelled up, like the swelling of a wave out in the sea. Pride says, I can do it. Pride says, I know what's best. Pride says, I'm going to call the shots. God says that in order to have personal revival, we can't be proud. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Do you remember the Laodicean church? We studied in in Revelation chapter 3. The Laodicean church was the church which Christ was on the outside. Remember that? I'll knock on the door, Christ said, and if they'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with them. Christ was not in there. The reason why is because God was absent in that church. They were perfectly content to do things on their own. That's what pride does. My pride convinces me that not only do I know what's best, I'm capable of doing what's best. That's what my flesh will tell me. It'll tell me that all the time. Your flesh will tell you that all the time. It'll convince you that you or I know what is what is best. The mark, or a mark, I should say, of the Laodicean church is that they have learned how to function without God's power. And I think there are churches all over the world doing that today so-called churches, walking in pride. God hates pride. We don't have time to turn to all of these, but Proverbs chapter 6, that's the list. Uh, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Remember that? Number one is a proud look. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. And then Proverbs 8, verse 13. Proverbs 11, 2. Chapter 16, verses 5 and 18 and 19. All of these things, God is letting us know pride is, pride is a root sin. You can look at it like that. Pride's a root sin. If I, if I walk in pride, I'm going to commit other sins. It will lead me. It'll lead me. There, there, are, some, there are some sins that are root sins, and then some are their limbs. They're not the root, they're just the product of what the root is. And if I, if I struggle with pride as a root sin, it will lead me to commit other sins. Well, how do I know if I'm walking in pride? How, how can I tell if I'm, if I'm walking in pride or not? Well, I put on your worksheet there quickly uh, a self-test for pride. There's, there's ten things that mark pride. Now, at some point in our life, we're all going to do these things. I'm talking about somebody who lives on, who lives like this. But let's just run through them quickly. No commentary. Let's just run through them quickly. So write quickly, if you would. First of all, pride refuses to listen, and it often interrupts others. It refuses to listen and often interrupts others. Pride likes to talk about self all the time. I've talked with people about an issue that somebody somebody was having, and this person just wanted to always pull the attention back to them. We're, we're talking about this person who's struggling, but this third person over here wants, wants the discussion to come back to him. Pride loves to talk about self all the time. That leads to number three, pride loves to have the attention. Pride loves to have the attention. Pride believes it deserves everything good that it gets. Can I say that again? Pride believes that it deserves everything good that it gets. Pride does not believe it deserves everything bad that it gets. That's that's just kind of how it goes, isn't it? 
Pride, what is that, number five? Pride is unthankful. Pride does not know gratitude. Number six, pride cannot receive correction. The book of Proverbs talks about that. You can't correct a proud person. Number seven, pride does not like to be instructed. Does not like to be instructed. How important is a teachable spirit, whether you're 15 years old or 85 years old? How important is a teachable spirit? Pride will keep us from having that. Number eight, pride loves to brag. Pride loves to brag. This this term has come up recently, uh, the humble brag. Have you heard that? I heard a guy. I heard a guy talking here a couple of months ago. He said, "Whenever you hear somebody say, I don't want to brag or anything, you better get ready for some bragging. That's what's coming." Uh, pride loves to brag. Pride criticizes others or points out their mistakes in order to make itself look better. And finally, pride thinks of its own needs first. Now, there are certain times in our lives, I'm sure, where one or all of those things uh, might pop up and we have, to, we have to check ourselves. But then there are those who walk in pride, as the scripture says. Be careful about that. God says this is an enemy. Christian, this is an enemy to personal revival. It will stop you from experiencing God's great work. So avoid pride. There was a story, and I, you know, I, I read these stories, these illustrations, um, and I, you don't know if they're true or not, especially they involve, they involve real-life people. You don't know if they're true or not, but it, it makes for a good story, and it, it's good for my point right here, so I'm going to share it with you. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. There's a story that said Muhammad Ali was standing in, a, in the aisle of a plane that was preparing to take off, and he was standing there kind of... Uh, uh, talking and entertaining, entertaining the crowd and stuff. Well, it, it came time for them to it came time for them to uh, take off. And so, Muhammad Ali was told by a, a stewardess. She said, "Mr. Ali, if you take your seat and buckle up your seatbelt, uh, we're getting ready to take off." He turned to that stewardess and said, "Superman doesn't need no seatbelt." She said, "Superman doesn't need a plane either." But here we are. Please be seated and let's take off. <laughs> We, see, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Pride is so dangerous, church. And here's the other thing, and you, you, you know this. Pride is so stinking subtle. It is so stinking subtle. We will get proud of our humility. We will. And we'll think we're being good Christians. Pride just creeps in, and it, it just it wreaks havoc in the life of a Christian. It wreaks havoc in our relationships. Be careful about pride. God has a much better plan. He says if my people would just humble themselves, and that word humble literally means to bend your knee. Bend your knee. Pride keeps us from doing that. God wants people to take whatever steps are necessary to humble themselves before his authority. If you're struggling with pride, if you struggle with it, in fact, let's just turn there. Let's let's take the time to turn there. Revelation chapter 3 Verses 17 and 18. By now, your Bible should just flop open to Revelation, either Revelation or Ephesians. I don't know which book your Bible is flopping open to, but Revelation chapter 3. If you struggle with pride, look at verses 17 and 18. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, 
and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyeself, that thou mayest see. The pride of the Laodicean church was they had no idea that they were poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. They thought they were rich. And in, they were rich and increased in goods and, and in need of nothing. And God said, that's not your true condition at all. Why is that? They were walking in pride. And God called them, God called them to walk back to themselves. You remember when uh, Jonah entered the city of Nineveh, that great city. Remember that? Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. He didn't want to do it, but he does eventually do it. God persuades him to get there. He finally does. And when he enters and he starts preaching about God's impending judgment, the Bible says from the king down to the poorest man, all the people humbled themselves before God's might. God's looking for you and I to demonstrate genuine humility. If you're going to live on a street, don't live on the street of pride. Live on the street of humility. If we desire personal revival, deal with with enemy number one tonight, pride. Enemy number two is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is the enemy of of revival. He says in our text, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. I said a moment ago that pride is a root sin. That root sin will lead you to prayerlessness. They are first cousins. If I walk in pride, I will not pray. Prayerlessness says, I don't need to call on the Lord. I, 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 don't, I don't need him right now. Now, there may come a time when I need him, but for today, I don't need him. John 15, 5 is still ringing back there in my mind where it says, without me, you can do nothing. But I think as long as the trail is clear and there's no limbs across it and it's not hilly or curvy and and it's just a straight road, I think to myself, I'm going to be fine here. I don't need to pray. You know what that is? That's a limb that's coming off of the root of pride. I don't need help here. Prayerlessness relies on self and whatever resources self can produce. I... I've got this ability. I've got this knowledge. I've got this access. And so we rely on ourselves rather than, than on the Lord. Prayerlessness is the result of walking in pride. Someone said this. I wish I remembered who said this. They said, it is a fact that we can pray and not have revival, but we will never have revival apart from prayer. It's a fact that we can pray and not have revival, but we will never have a revival apart from prayer. Prayer is the ultimate statement of inability. Prayer is me admitting I can't do it. Do what, Mark? I I can't do it, period. I can't do anything. Without me, ye can do nothing. And so my marriage depends on me praying and confessing to God, Lord, I, I I want you to bless our marriage, my parenting or grandparenting. My vocation, my relationships, my impact on eternity, none of those things are going to be about my ability or my, uh, my resources. Prayer says, God, I can't do it. Prayer looks to God and says, God, I can't do this. There's something in us, though. I remember Pastor Cross used to use the term all the time. He used to use the term pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
I've heard that before, but I've never heard anyone default to it like Pastor Cross used to. And that's there's something in the American spirit. Uh, we are, we're going to do this. We're going to start at the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to go over to the Pacific Ocean. We're going to take this country. And we're going to do it. We're going to tame the wilderness, and we're going to do it. But there's something in that idea that drives us away from dependency of, on God. Now, God does want us to be bold and courageous. He tells Joshua three times in chapter 1, be strong and of good courage. But that never is to replace my dependency on him. And one of the things that, one of the things that where I confess, God, I can't handle this situation. I, I can't do it. Prayerlessness fights that humility. Prayerlessness is an enemy to personal revival. James 3 says sometimes we're praying, but we're praying for the wrong, wrong things. James chapter 4 and verse 3 says, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. I don't agree with everything Charles Finney did or some of his philosophies in ministry, but he did say this, prayer is the essential link in the chain of events that leads to revival. You can pray and not have revival, but we'll never have a revival apart from prayer. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. We don't, we don't pass out a survey when you walk in here on Sundays and Wednesdays and said, how much time did you spend in prayer this week? But I want to challenge you, church. You ought to be growing in this area, not declining. Prayerlessness in a Christian will lead to anemia. It'll lead to weakness. Prayer, prayer is me confessing my weakness to God and then him doing something about it. We've lost this art of praying or, or waiting on the Lord in prayer. Here's, here's a caution here. Guard against your prayer time becoming formal and repetitious. Formal and repetitious. May I, may I just make this very practical to you? Let me just make this real practical. What if every time I came up to, let's use the Abernathy's. We'll pick on Roger and Roxanne. Every time I come up to Roger and Roxanne, every time, I say the exact same thing to them. Hey, Roger and Roxanne, how are y'all doing? Y'all been out to eat this week? What'd you do Tuesday? Five days later, hey, Roger, Roxanne, good to see you. How are y'all doing? You been out to eat this week? What'd you do Tuesday? What if every time I go to them, I have the exact same conversation? What is my relationship? Is there a, is there a personalness? Is that even a word? Let's use it anyway. Is there a personalness to my relationship with the Abernathys if every time I see them, it's just this routine, repetitive conversation? Eventually, they're going to get the idea that I'm just coming and talking to them because I think I'm supposed to. Now, flip that to my conversation with God and the, the repetition the the mundane conversation with that I have with him, it's just because I know I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to pray. So here I am, God. It's 8.30 at night, and this is our prayer time. And uh, You see what I'm saying? My conversation with God and your conversation with God, it ought to be a vibrant, real, intimate, personal, relevant conversation. Talk to God about today. Talk to, about, talk to God about what frustrated you or, or elated you today. 
Thank him for something different today than you thanked him for yesterday. Surely you can come up. I can come up. Surely we can come up with something to thank him for different than what I prayed yesterday. Guard against your prayer time becoming formal and repetitious. You have a personal, intimate father who invites you to come boldly into his presence. And he wants a personal relative conversation with you. Not just something I'm doing. I'm just talking to Roger and Roxanne because they go to church with me. I better talk to them. I don't want them to think I'm mad at them. So I better talk to them. I better talk to God today. I don't want him to think, I don't want him to think I'm mad at him. So I better say something to My goodness. That's never going to help me in revival, is it? That's not going to lead me to revival. Prayerlessness is an enemy of this. I, I read a story about D.L. Moody. I, I like D.L. Moody. When I, I, I often compare in my little, my little brain, I compare D.L. Moody and C.H. Spurgeon. When I think of Spurgeon, I just think of this is a highly intellectual man, well-educated, um, lofty. When I read him, I'm like, I have to read C.H. Spurgeon with a dictionary. But I, when, I, when, I, when I read about and read D.L. Moody, I just get this plain-spoken American you know, evangelist who's pretty straightforward. Well, D.L. Moody, you know, from Massachusetts, but, but ministered in Chicago. And when the great Chicago fire took place in 1871, the months following that, Moody all but exhausted himself in ministry. The, the, the fire burned, I don't remember how many thousands of buildings killed 300 people. It devastated the city of Chicago. Moody, Moody was wrung out. So he took a, in, um, in 1872, he took a months long sabbatical to England. And his purpose was there to go and refresh and renew. He intentionally went uh, telling his family and telling those that he ministered with that he was not going to, he was not going to uh, preach on this trip. He was just going to be refreshed. Well, he got there. He bumped into a friend of his, a preacher whose last name was Lessie. And when he found out Dwight Moody was in uh, England, he said, he said, Mr. Moody, you have to come preach to our church. Moody reluctantly agreed. He went there on a Sunday morning and he preached. And, and he wrote later that afternoon in the journal, in his journal, he wrote, it's the spiritually coldest church I've ever preached in. The only thing making it worse is that I promised I would go back and preach tonight. And he did. He went back that night and um, so unresponsive in the morning. But about halfway through his sermon on Sunday night, there was a stirring in the church. And at the end of the invitation, Moody Moody just asked, how many would like to become Christians tonight? And so many people raised their hand in that church congregation that he thought they misunderstood the question. And so he, he said, after service tonight, if you'd like to be saved, just meet me in this side room over here. And so he got into a conversation after the service, and he, eventually he made his way to that room. The room was packed with people who wanted to become a Christian. Several people there got saved. Several Christians in the church were stirred that night and convicted of the way they were living, the preacher asked Moody if he would come back and preach the following night. And for the next 10 nights, Moody began preaching in that church, 
and Christians started confessing sin and humbling themselves before God and praying and seeking God's face. And in 10 days, more than 400 people made professions of faith in Christ because revival came to that church and the believers in the church returned to their walk with the Lord like they should. Revival wasn't that people were being saved. That was the result of God's people being made right. Moody went there to be refreshed, and God used him to bring about a fantastic revival in this church that led to more than 400 conversions. Moody was stunned. But we really shouldn't be. If we would just be available and be walking with God like we should be, He was trying to figure out why all of this happened. So he started talking to that pastor at the end of that 10 or 12 days. He started talking to that pastor. Come to find out, there was an 80-something-year-old widow in the church. Her name is Mary Ann Adeland. She had read one of D.L. Moody's sermons in the London paper and started praying that this American evangelist would come over to England and preach in her church. And she prayed that for days and weeks and months. That meeting was bathed in prayer before the Chicago fire took place. She was already praying for this guy to come and preach in her church. You cannot separate personal revival from sincere prayer. That's my point. And Christian... You and I take prayer and we relegate it to the side far more often than we want other people to know. Pride is an enemy of prayerlessness or is an enemy of of revival, but prayerlessness is also an enemy of revival. Leonard Ravenhill, he was a revivalist. He said, the church is dying on its feet because it's not living on its knees. Isn't that convicting? The church is dying on its feet because it's not living on his knees. When Jonah entered into the city, in chapter 3 and verse 8 of the book of Jonah, it says that the the people were told to cry mightily unto God. And when they did, the end of chapter 3, God stayed his hand of judgment. Prayerlessness is the enemy to personal revival. Pride. Enemy number three, priorities. Priorities or misplaced priorities, however you want to write that. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Would you mark that? And seek my face. In seeking God's face, that means that we turn toward his direction. We try to see what, what's on God's face. What, what, is, what is God looking at? Where is God's attention? If you're standing behind God, you can't see his face, so you don't know where he's looking. So come around, seek his face, and find out where he has his attention. What is God paying attention to? Make God's focus your focus. Those who seek his face. Someone said, revival does not come to Christians who seek revival, but to Christians who seek God. Too often we're praying for revival. And and that's not our primary focus. We don't pray for revival. We don't seek revival. Revival's not the end. God is the end. The choir sings a song every once in a while. I love the song. We sang it the first year it came out. We bought it and, and sang it. The song is entitled Jesus Alone. 
But the opening line of the song says, once I sought the blessing, now I seek the source. And too often times we get wrapped up in what God can give to us or do for us. And that's what we're looking at instead of just seeking God. Just seeking him. Just seeking a relationship with with him. Far too many people are caught up in what God can do. But seeking his face means that we we hunger for who he is. Not what he does, but for who he is. Is the key to genuine revival. This is what uh, this is what Jesus told the church at Ephesus back in Revelation chapter two. He said, "The problem in your church, you've got some great things going on in your church, Ephesus, but the problem is you've left your first love. What was their first love? Their first love was the Lord. Priorities are the enemy of revival if they're placed in the wrong order." We have to watch where our focus is. When God is our first priority, then what is important to him all of a sudden becomes important to me. When God is our first priority, what has his attention will have our attention. We're told to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And you know who was a great example of this? Jesus. Jesus was a wonderful example for pursuing the priorities of his father. Listen to what it says in the last part of John 5, 19. For what things soever the father doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. I would find out what God is doing and where he's working and what he's loving and what he's hating, and I would pursue that course of action. Make God's priority your priority. Because misplaced priorities are an enemy to personal revival. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. So how how do I know? Let's take another test. Can we? This is only three parts. A three-part test of my priorities. You can probably fill in the blanks if you just do a little bit of thinking, but I'll fill them in for you. The first one, on what do I spend most of my time? On what do I spend most of my time? Now, you have jobs. I'm assuming you have jobs. So let's say this. On what do I spend most of my free time? Let's say that. Second, on what do I spend the bulk of my money? Third, on what do I focus my thoughts? This is how I know what's priority to me. My time, my resources, and my thought life. That'll tell you what's priority to me. When I have free time, where do I spend most of it? Where do I spend the bulk of my money? On what do I focus my thoughts? So what is priority to you? don't Don't answer out loud, but what's priority? Based on those three questions, what's priority to you? Family? Job? Your spouse? Forget your spouse, your children? Your pet, your church, your friends, your hobbies, your retirement account. What's priority to you? Where, where do we have? Where, where do we put our foc- the focus of our life? This is this is important because God says one of the things that encourages personal revival, it makes it possible, is me seeking His face. 
having his priorities. Lamentations 3, verses 40 and 41. There's a book we don't turn to very often, isn't it? Lamentations 3, 40 and 41. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. Pride, prayerlessness, misplaced priorities, all enemies of personal revival. And the last one is this, presumption. Presumption. The last part of this this, uh, warning is to turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. That's the very definition of repentance, isn't it? What does the word repent mean? It means to turn and go in the opposite direction, to turn away from. He's calling on them to turn away from their wicked ways, to turn away from our sins and embrace holiness. Israel found it easy to presume on the grace and the goodness of God. And you know what? So does a New Testament Christian. We presume on the grace of God sometimes. Pastor, what do you mean by presumption in this? Let me give you a let me give you a a possibility. Hopefully it's not a reality in us, but this is this is just an example. One of the major doctrines that we hold to at Faith Baptist Church, because it's a Bible doctrine, is the doctrine of eternal security. That says that once a person is saved, they are always saved. They have been born into the family of God, and being born into the family of God, they cannot be removed from that family. We now have God as our Father, eternal security. The, the mantra is, once saved, always saved. And that's true. That's true. If you're saved, you're in God's family. Nothing you can do will take you out of it. That's a wonderful, true Bible doctrine. But belief in eternal security may weaken my view on the awfulness of sin keeping me from immediately confessing it. Let me read that again. My belief in eternal security might weaken my view on the awfulness of sin, keeping me from immediately confessing it. Paul, when writing to the Roman church in chapter 7 and verse number, uh, verse number 13, he said that Christians should view sin as, and here's his quote, We should see it as exceeding sinful. But sometimes we downplay its sinfulness. Sometimes you and I, because no matter what we do, if we're saved, we're going to heaven when we die. That's just true. It's eternal security. Once saved, always saved. A sin can't break that. And because we believe that's so true, sometimes that has the potential to weaken my view on the sinfulness of sin, the awfulness of it, the dirtiness of it, the pollution of it. Sin keeps us from, keeps God rather from hearing our prayer. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, Proverbs 15, 29, Proverbs 28, 9, Isaiah 59 verse 2, all of them say the same thing. Sin is going to keep God from hearing the prayer, but a righteous man, God will hear him. It's easy to see the the hypocritical sin in our nation. We tolerate a lot of sin, Christians. Even more than that, we participate in it. You know how? We need more money for our schools in the state of Tennessee. 
We need more money for the schools. Let's open up the lottery. The lottery is going to be the answer to our financial needs for our schools. So bring the lottery to the state of Tennessee. Do you know the number one thing you're going to hear this fall when the school board commissioners are seeking re-election? We've got to get more money for our schools. We've had billions of dollars flow through our state going through the lottery. You know what still is our greatest need in our school system? We need financing. You know why? Because, because this doesn't fly. We need more money in our schools. Let's legalize what God warns against. You know God warns against and condemns us from participating in gambling? That's breaking scripture. You say, I don't know about that. Fine. Proverbs 13, 11 and 21, 20. Find those scriptures and see what God has to say. God never has anything good to say about the quick acquisition of wealth. Here's another key. The only way... Well, let me just put it like this. Do you know why it's possible for you to win $500 million in a lottery? Do you know why that's possible? Because you're profiting on everybody else's loss. What kind of Christ-like spirit is it if I'm going to profit on your loss? Should I profit on your loss? Does that sound right to me as a Christian? doesn't to me. We're to seek the good of others. Um, teen pregnancy is on the rise. We have to address that. We need to get into our schools and talk to them about safe sex and make sure that they have access to good, solid birth control. Do you see how tolerant we are, we are in our nation of things that God says is sin? How well, We know it's wrong, but God says that's not the, problem. That's not the issue. The answer is not going into the schools and talking to them about safe sex and making sure they have access to good birth control. No wonder God won't send revival to our nation. But what about our churches? Why doesn't God send revival to the American church? Here, this is on your worksheet, I think. We do not have revival because our, I'm talking about in the church now, because our tolerance for worldliness has increased and our commitment to biblical separation has decreased. That's a, that is an inarguable fact. Our tolerance for worldliness in the church has increased and our commitment to biblical separation has decreased. Now, when I say biblical separation, I'm not talking about your opinion or my opinion on the dress code. That's not, that's not separation. I'm talking about separation from flat-out worldliness, worldly philosophy, worldly language, Worldly priorities. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, John said. We have to watch, watch out for this. We tolerate dishonesty. We engage in worldly pleasures. We, laughed at, we laugh at comedy that God labels abomination. We fail to exercise Christian liberty in considering others. We tolerate false teachers. God cannot and will not bless that in a church. And yet it's prevalent all over our nation, our Christian nation. What we need is a season of repentance. And turn. this is God talking to the church. I mean, originally talking to Israel, but the application tonight is for the church. If my people will turn from their wicked ways. You know what the problem is, though? 
And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of this, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not the Pope up here on some little diving board talking down. The problem is we are quick with excuses and defenses of our behavior, but we are slow to fall before the Lord and confess our sin. Well, God didn't say that I can't do that. Did God say, though, that was the best thing to do? All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. They're not beneficial. We have to acknowledge as a church, we have to acknowledge as a a body of believers that God is calling us to humility and to prayer and to seeking his face and to turning from our wicked ways. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's another way of saying turn from your wicked way, just like the chronicler is saying here. James chapter 5 and verse 16, we quote this verse a lot, don't we? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And do you know what you know what we often emphasize in that verse? The effectual and fervent part of that verse. But it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous Christian. A righteous man availeth much. One who is holy and upright and full of integrity who obeys God's word. That's the righteous man. That's the righteous woman. I hope that describes you. I hope that describes me. I want my prayer to be effectual. But it's going to have its greatest effect if I'm living righteously like my Savior. The the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We can't presume. We can't presume on God's grace. God's calling us to turn from our wicked ways. He's calling us to walk away from pride and to walk in humility. He's calling us to seek his face. He's calling us to get out of the trap of prayerlessness and get into a daily, intimate, personal, vital relationship and fellowship with him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Revival comes from those who it comes to those who adopt the attitude that the people in Nineveh have. I keep coming back to Nineveh, but it's just a great it's a great illustration. Jonah chapter three and verse ten says, God saw their works. What were those works? They were the works of repentance. They humbled themselves from the king on down. They put sackcloth on and they they covered themselves in ashes and they To use the scripture, they cried mightily unto God. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. This is what revival revival looks like in the Christian. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Those are the enemies of personal revival. Pride, prayerlessness, misplaced priorities, and presumption. They have to be defeated in you and in me. And they they can be. Because the, the wonderful promise at the end of our verse, God says when this happens, so it, it can happen, what will he do? Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. Would you just mark that in your scripture, at least in your mind? 
I will do this. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. This is an absolute promise from God. That word heal means to stitch back together, to make it right. This is a description of revival at the end of this, at the end of this uh, verse. And this is your clo- closing thought here. God hearing, God cleansing, God working. He will hear our prayer, forgive our sin, heal our land. His hearing, his cleansing, his working. I want to be a good candidate for revival. I can't guarantee revival. I can't say that for sure God's going to bring revival to Faith Baptist Church or to me personally. I can't work up revival, nor can you. We can have a guy come in, and I know we have a lot of, we have a lot of churches in our area that have what they call revival meetings. But God, God doesn't work in a set of dates. God, God's work is, is one of sovereign decree. It's his determination to find someone whose heart is perfect toward him. In fact, Chronicles says again, I think it's chapter 16 and verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's looking for people whose heart is perfect toward him. He is looking for people upon whom he can, he can give a spirit of revival. I can't guarantee that. But what I can do is look into Mark Campbell's heart and say, have I humbled myself before him? Do I have an active and vibrant prayer life with God every day? Am I seeking God's face in my prayer? Is what, it, is, what is important to God, is that important to me? And am I turning away from the wickedness that assaults us every day in this world? I can't bring revival, but I can make my heart available for it, and so can you. Combat these enemies. Don't, don't let them invade. Make your, heart, make your heart a place where if God chooses, he can send you personal revival. And if he does, who's to say that that personal revival wouldn't spread in the body that's called Faith Baptist Church? We can't guarantee it. We can't call it down. But we can make our hearts ready for it. I want to encourage you to do that. Encourage, I want to encourage you to practice that first part of Second Chronicles 7.14, and then let's pray that God would do the second part of that same verse. All right? That's a good passage of Scripture tonight. I hope that's an encouragement to you, and at the same time, I hope it's a challenge to you, because it is to me. It, it surely is a challenge to me. Let's close in prayer tonight, but before we do that, let's take, if you would, your prayer bulletin um, and and then we'll we'll close in prayer. We've got several here that I want to update with you. Um, Gail Davis has asked us in, in the very first column, that salvation column, we've, af- we've added a young lady named Krista. Uh, Krista is 25 years old. She just had a baby recently, and after uh, that baby was delivered, she had a stroke that was the result of a hole they discovered in her heart. Krista's not saved. 
And so Gail, and I don't know how 